Good morning, FEC. Yeah, and as Pastor James just said, I'd, I'd just like to thank you uh, as a church for trusting your leaders in allowing me to stand before you and God uh, to deliver his word. I certainly don't take this lightly at all. And as many of you already know, our word and theme for this year um, has been Behold. And as part of this, we've been going through a series now and then on God's promises to his people. Last Sunday, Pastor James preached on the promise that God gives us rest. And I hope we've been experiencing and wanting that spiritual rest in our lives. And it goes hand in hand with today's message, which is on the promise that God gives us eternal life. But before I begin, let me quickly pray again. Uh, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would fill this room, uh, fill our hearts, our bodies with your spirit, and would you bless uh, your word as it is preached and received, and may it sink deeply uh, into every cell of our bodies. Um, would you feed us, O oh God? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I grew up in a Christian family, and my parents were missionaries serving Chinese immigrants. Uh, but I really met God and started following him roughly four years ago. Um, before that, I blamed my parents, and certainly God, um, for how miserable I was growing up. Um, felt like I couldn't do anything, uh, moving all the time. Um, life never went my way. Troublemaking friends, had troublemaking friends. But when I was a senior in high school in New Jersey, when things were slowly starting to gain momentum for me, you know, some kids, not many, you know, they knew my name, and I thought I was finally belonging somewhere. My family suddenly had to leave the States to go to Korea. And I remember being on the plane, sat on the window seat, firmly deciding in my heart that I would not follow God anymore, right? That I would do whatever I wanted to do. And from that moment on began this 10-year rebellious period of my life. Now, I still went to church, but I also did whatever I wanted to do. And during this period, I used to play this, I used to play this reality check game where I would ask myself from time to time, hey, if, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And there was no contest. I would confidently be able to say, yes, I would. But around the last two or three years of that period, I'd stopped going to church completely. And one day I asked myself this question and I just couldn't answer right away. I really didn't know anymore. And I was so surprised because I never seriously considered the idea that I would go to hell. Have you? And I knew that the reason why I couldn't answer was because of the way I was living. It didn't sit right with me in my heart to call myself a Christian because I saw what I was doing in my life. Now the point of this story is to show you how I understood eternal life then. Back then, eternal life was living forever in heaven after I die. That's a pretty common conception of eternal life. 
And until a month ago, eternal life was being resurrected when Jesus returns and then living forever in God's presence in heaven. But as I studied this topic, I found that eternal life is so much richer and life-giving. And it's probably because I'm still a young buck, right? But my Christian walk, my understanding of who God is, my relationship with God, changed. So I'm really excited today to share with you this message, and my prayer is that we will be thirsty to have eternal life now. So today's message comes from 1 John. Now 1 John is a, it's a wonderful letter, full of love and care and encouragement, and it's written by the Apostle John, and it's one of those letters you want to keep at your desk or keep in your back pocket and carry around with you so that you can read it again and again. And it's also timely to be preaching from 1 John because there's so much in common between this letter and John's gospel, which we've been going through. And there's commonality not just in the style and vocabulary, but also with the teachings and themes. And so if you would read John's gospel first and then 1 John, you'd be able to start identifying these commonalities and get that uncanny feeling like, hey, I've, I've seen this before. This sounds familiar. Even the reason that John gives for writing these two books are almost the same. In John 20, 31, John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You see the pattern here? Believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and have eternal life, or life. Keeping in mind that John uses life and eternal life interchangeably. John clearly emphasizes that having eternal life is the result of believing in Jesus, and it seems to be a very important part of the gospel. But notice, notice that John's gospel is written for people to have eternal life, while 1 John is written for believers to know that they have eternal life. And why does John need to remind believers that they already have something? See, the Apostle John wrote this letter to the churches in the area of Ephesus because false teachers had seriously disturbed the church. These false teachers claimed to know and love God, but the way they lived didn't reflect that at all. On top of that, they ended leaving. They ended up leaving, and those who remained in the church were so shaken up, so much so that John writes to reassure and encourage them, not because they don't have eternal life, but because they should abide in what they already have. And so what John is essentially saying in this letter is that when we abide in God, we have eternal life. And this is a message that we need to hear today because we also get shaken up in our faith, don't we? We get swayed by others. We get confused. We get lost sometimes. Look, nobody's immune to this. 
And if you're going through a difficult time, if your faith is being tested, or you know that you're spiritually dry, then please listen. Hear this message of reassurance for you today, that when we abide in God, we have eternal life. And for this message to even be encouraging, we first need to know what eternal life is. And if eternal life isn't just living forever, what is it? Eternal life is to be in a life-giving relationship with God in His presence forever. And to break this down, we're going to start with Genesis. Don't, don't worry, it's only 50 chapters, right? <laughs> and then we're going to go to 1 John, stay there for a bit, and then why not? We'll just do the whole New Testament. So go ahead, cancel your dinner plans. Okay. So the first piece is that eternal life is forever. After Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now, we know that the punishment and curse is because of their disobedience and sin. But do you know why they're kicked out of Eden? It's because they might take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Living forever would have been the reward for obedience, but Adam's disobedience led to more sin, brokenness, and death. But it's not just immortality that was lost as a result of disobedience. Because of all the blessings that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, what was the greatest blessing? It was their relationship with God, and their ability to be in God's presence. You know how you realize how much you want something only after you lose it. Like it could be the last slice of pizza that you just refused, that you see someone else eating. Or maybe the innocence of your kids when they start to talk back and disobey. Or what about life itself? when you can no longer say even hello to somebody. We tend to gain perspective and realize the value of something when we no longer have it. And for Adam and Eve, it was a relationship with God and the enjoyment of being in his presence. And how do we know this? Genesis 3.8, after Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And what do they do? They hide themselves from his presence. God's presence was so normal for them that when they had sinned, they knew that they were supposed to hide. And as darker sins enter the world, it says in Genesis 4.26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Why? Because they no longer had the special relationship with God that they were supposed to have. And they knew that life wasn't meant to be this broken, and hard. They needed saving. So imagine how hard it would have been for Adam and Eve to have experienced God's presence and then lose it. And when we put two and two together, as we've heard, what we get is that if, if Adam and Eve had kept on obeying, then at some point they would have been rewarded with the eternal life 
that comes from God himself. And they would be guaranteed to enjoy God's presence forever. See, eternal life and God cannot be separated. Notice how the world often portrays immortality as living forever without God, not needing God. It's because if you have immortality, you do become a God of sorts. But how twisted is that from the truth? Because who gives eternal life? God. And humans are made in the image of God. See, God intended mankind to live with his eternal life, not with the life as we know it here. The life that mankind has now is actually death. There is no life apart from God. So when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their sin not only led to death, but also a separation from God's presence. Now, despite God's punishment of death, incredibly, we already see God's grace at work because Adam and Eve are still alive. When you fast forward to Noah's time, sin has filled the world to the point where God decides to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth must die. This is a world that looks like the opposite of Eden. It's a kind of anti-creation that goes against everything that God had attended. And so it only makes sense to destroy everything. And God almost does, but he doesn't. After the great flood, the world's population is eight. If Noah, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people. So why doesn't God destroy everyone at the flood, or even before in the garden? It's because as God punished sin in the garden, holding back his full wrath, God also promised a savior who would defeat Satan, sin, and death. And so the rest of the Old Testament tells this epic quest of going throughout history to look for the Messiah, the one who will not only reverse the curse of sin, but also restore mankind's relationship with God and being in his presence. And it's in this context that the Old Testament sets the stage for God's people, who seem, by the way, really obsessed with two things, forgiveness of sins and being in God's presence. It's the way to eternal life. So the Old Testament progressively reveals more and more about this great reversal towards eternal life. In Deuteronomy 30, before the Israelites enter the Promised Land, Moses reminds them how to live as God's people. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. So on one side, God's people can love God, obey his commands, receive blessing and life. And on the other hand, there's idolatry, disobedience, curse, and death. Does this sound familiar? Well, it should because it's essentially the Garden of Eden again. In terms of relationship, the Israelites were 
handpicked by God to be in a covenantal relationship with him. In terms of sin, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would perform rituals to remove the people's sins. In terms of presence, the Israelites had a tabernacle and then a temple in which the glory of God in his presence would come down in a cloud of glory into the Holy of Holies. And they had a choice, right? The Israelites had a choice to choose life through love and obedience and trust in God. And it seems like mankind is getting closer to the good old garden days, towards eternal life. But when you read through the Old Testament, it becomes clear that humans simply cannot do good in God's eyes. And death has been the state of mankind since the fall. But there's hope. There's hope because God promises to give us his eternal life so that we can be with him in his presence. In Ezekiel 36, God promises through the prophet Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the promise of spiritual rebirth and God's spirit living in us. In other words, God is promising that he will give his eternal life to his people. He will make a way for mankind to stop rebelling and start obeying to love God, to remain in his presence. And so if we bring all the pieces together, eternal life is, again, to be in a life-giving relationship with God and his presence forever. Do you see this? Do you see how the entire Bible tells a story of how God had always, even before the fall, been set on giving mankind the blessing of being in his presence and enjoying a life-giving relationship with him. And this eternal life comes from God and nowhere else. Nowhere else. When our sins clearly got in the way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. The good news is that we can finally, finally have eternal life. We can finally have a relationship with God, a relationship that God himself considered worthy of the death and punishment of his son. And so it's through Christ alone that we can finally return to God's presence a presence that was forbidden because of our sins. So now that we understand that eternal life is God's gift of a never-ending life, of being one with Him in His presence, we have to seriously ask ourselves, when do we have eternal life? When can we start to enjoy this relationship and presence with our Creator? Well, eternal life is, is now. We have it right now. Okay, we, 
we still cannot experience the fullness of it. One day we will, but right now, we still cannot love and obey God perfectly. Always being in the fullness of His presence. But who did? Jesus did. And He still does. When Jesus came into this world, He was sent to be the source of eternal life because He was perfectly with God. This is why Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He saw mankind dying of spiritual thirst and offered himself, Come to me and drink. And whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God will give so much life that we won't be able to contain it. If you promise a man dying of thirst, if you promise him that you'll give him more water than he could ever imagine, is that promise alone going to save him? No. And God didn't give us just a promise to get us through life on earth. We're not believing in a promise but still dying. We don't enter God's presence and have a living relationship with God after we die. No. We have eternal life now, and we have it because we believe. When we put our faith in Jesus, it's because we already have the Holy Spirit. Amen? Remember that when Jesus was on earth, the Spirit of God descended from heaven like a dove and filled him so that the humanity of Jesus was in constant communion with the Spirit. And Jesus gives us what he has. So we have that same spirit dwelling within every believer. So if you believe that Christ died for you and rose again, if you believe that Christ is the Son of God and that he is God, then people of God believe also that the Holy Spirit is in you now and that you have direct access to God now. Believe that you are a new creation now. Praise God that even though this world is still broken and in darkness, we can be in God's presence everywhere we go. And this is what the Apostle John is saying in 1 John. Know that you have eternal life now. Okay, you might be thinking, all right, I get that. But how do I experience that? Because I, I don't feel like I have eternal life. How do we even know that we're living with eternal life? What does the Bible say about this? Before anything else, the most important thing is to believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and that he came to die for your sins, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're not following yet Christ, you've been skeptical, cautious, burdened, then hear this. There is a God who created this world, who created you, who has a greater purpose for your life. And you can't see him, but you could hear, you can hear 
the good news. You can hear the good news that Jesus died so that you can live. And he's saying to you now, come to me. And for those who believe, the Apostle John has two simple instructions from today's passage. The first instruction is to let the gospel abide in you. If you open your Bible to 1 John 2, 24, it says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Isn't that, it's a funny way to put it, let what you heard from the beginning. And it's important to note here that there is a beginning. See, when the apostles proclaimed the gospel and Jesus' teachings, it resulted in spiritual rebirth and transformation. In other words, what they heard, the gospel, led to a new beginning. So ask yourselves this. Has the gospel given you a new beginning? Has the gospel given you a new beginning? And if it has, then rest assured that the gospel, the same gospel that gave you a new beginning, can sustain you for the rest of your lives. God's word of truth are the words of eternal life. So when we lose our passion, it can rekindle our hearts. When we're depressed, it can lift up our spirits. When we're burnt out, it can give us rest. When we give up, it can give us hope. When we're caught in anxiety, it can give us peace. And when we don't want to follow God anymore, and when we cannot love others, the gospel can give us God's love again and again and again. We need to abide in the gospel and its teachings. But what does it mean to abide? When John uses the word abide, he isn't introducing a new word or idea. Jesus also used this word a lot, especially, especially in John 15. But John does use this word more than any other New Testament writer. And when he uses it, there's almost always a sense of interaction and relationship. And that's the case for verse 24 here. Remember when Jesus says that he is the vine? Abide in me and I in you. If A abides in B, then B will abide in A. And it will result in this internal, continuous, interactive, personal relationship between A and B that leads to something like giving and receiving, knowing and being known, loving and being loved, all towards a deeper relationship. Since high school, I kept noticing my father change. His anger and shouting being replaced with care and gentleness that was clearly out of repentance. But I also started to notice my hate and resentment towards him because the damage was done. And by college, the relationship was pretty much broken. But my father reached out first, and the more I saw him change and show his love, the more I knew that I had to stop trying to hate a man who was no longer there. And I'm still trying 
But because I let my Father abide in me, I began to abide in Him. We started to talk and listen to each other, to give and receive to one another. And we had to readjust ourselves, relearn who we were. But once this dynamic began, it was the beginning of a, of a beautiful, deep relationship that I cherish today. And this is the kind of abiding that the apostle commands believers to let the gospel continue to abide in them, keep interacting and having a relationship with the gospel truth. Because the gospel doesn't change. It doesn't lose value or power over time, but the reason why we feel like it sometimes does is because we've stopped letting it abide in us. If we want to be gospel-centered, we have to actively hold on to the gospel truth and make sure it's being lived out in our lives. And this might mean reading the Bible, meditating, praying on it to feed your soul. It could be me, it could be hearing the gospel being preached in sermons during your commute, meeting other believers and hearing their testimonies and being amazed that God is still at work today, listening to a worship song instead of whatever other song is preaching a different message, being extra gentle, kind, and humble to the people you find it most difficult to love because you know God's love, giving thanks to God for your salvation and submitting to our call to repent, wanting the people you work with to know God and growing that desire, reaching out and checking up on people you know who need it most, looking for the good in someone else when you find yourselves judging because you know God's grace. Let the gospel abide in you, day in, day out. And what happens when we let the gospel abide in us? Verse 24 says that you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this isn't just a promise of the future. It's a relationship that we can enjoy now. Now, what I've said so far might seem easy. Right? Believe in Jesus? Check. I have a deep living interaction with the gospel truth? Check. But the next instruction is where it might get difficult for some of us. But John repeatedly mentions it throughout 1 John because it's what Jesus emphasized. And it's that in order to abide in God and experience eternal life, we have to, we have to obey God's word. You see, we can't, we can say that we're actively believing in Jesus, but if we're not actively obeying his commandments, we're not in a living relationship with God. If we're not actively obeying God's commandments, we're not in a living relationship with God, and a dead relationship is no relationship. So back in college, 
before I met God, when I, when I still thought I'd go to heaven and called myself a Christian. I struggled a lot between the pleasures that I wanted to chase and how a Christian should live. I wanted to drink, party, chase after women, be as vulgar as I could be, stick it to the man, and don't, don't worry guys, this isn't, I'm not sticking it to the man here, okay? I just love, I love this color. But I also knew that these things weren't the Christian thing to do. So one day I asked my mom, Oma, there's all these things that I really want to do that I shouldn't. But if being a Christian means cutting all of these things out of my life, then isn't the Christian life just really hard and, and boring? And I, re I only realized as I was preparing for this sermon just how hard it must have been for my mom to hear her, her one and only son ask this. But she had the wisdom and the courage to tell me. She said, you can't understand now because you're not born again yet. But one day when you are, you'll want to follow God. You'll want to follow God's word and cut those things from your life. And it'll be easy. And she was right. I had no idea what she was talking about back then. But I do now because if you've heard the gospel of truth and being born again of the Spirit, you believe in Jesus Christ, then you've experienced God's love. And in response to his love, you'll want to love him back. You'll want to obey. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. For God, trusting obedience is the greatest expression of love, and the gospel is a model of that obedience. The Son obeyed the will of the Father. We have to understand that Jesus obeyed the Father even in order to be born on earth. And from that moment on until his death, his humanity was put in this intense struggle of obedience. Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. In Matthew 26, Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to the Father so that he wouldn't have to take our sins and die on the cross. But how does he end that prayer? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays two more times. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, unless I take the punishment of sin, then your will be done. The Father's will wasn't just to show us the perfect example to Christ. The Father's will had to be done because there was no other way for salvation. So where Adam failed to obey, Jesus succeeded. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So what are we, the followers and believers of Christ, called to obey? Well, First John, the apostle makes it clear. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's it. It's simple, but it's also black and white. This may be hard to hear, but we cannot be deceiving ourselves about something as serious as eternal life. In, John, in 1 John 3.10, John says that it is clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And hear this. The children of the devil, those who are not of God, are the people who are not practicing God's righteousness and do not love their brothers. So listen to this warning. I'm only saying this once. If we're not continuously trying to obey God's commandments, of course, we're going to fall short of God's perfect standard. But if we're not continuously trying and wanting to try, especially to love one another, to forgive one another, then we're not in a living relationship with God. There's nothing more serious than the business of eternal life. Later on in 1 John 3, 23 to 24, John sums up brilliantly everything I've just said. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. When we abide in God and God abides in us, we are one with God, communing with him in his presence. And we get to experience that mysterious, beautiful, perfect relationship of love that's in the Godhead among the Father, Son, and Spirit. We get to have that. So the whole story of the Bible shows that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Can you see that if throughout all of history, mankind has been crying out for life, life, and life, then all of scripture is proclaiming Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because our disobedience and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our sins that got in the way, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our unworthy righteousness, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our physical death. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Our spiritual death. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What about our separation from God? For I am sure 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how Jesus has done everything? He's given us everything for us to have eternal life. No wonder all we have to do is believe in him. And I could go on admiring more about Jesus and eternal life, but I think the most important thing for us to take away about eternal life today is that Jesus is eternal life. See, Jesus gives us eternal life when we believe in him and obey and have a relationship with him. But all of this is possible because Jesus himself is eternal life. In 1 John 5.20, the apostle John pretty much ends his letter by saying, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So justification, sanctification, glorification, these things aren't just promised states, but this is, they're all part of one package, one gift, and that's Jesus Christ himself in the fullness that is given to us. That's eternal life. And this is why Jesus offers himself, saying, come to me and drink, because I know how thirsty you've been in the wilderness, trying to quench your thirst for purpose, satisfaction, meaning. And this is why he says, come to me, and I'll give you rest, because I know how tired you've been without my Sabbath, where you work and work and work and then die. So when we think about how God had originally wanted to give mankind eternal life as a reward, but because of our sin, how he tells his son to give himself to death as a sacrifice, and then to give himself to resurrected life as a gift, don't we see how much God loves us, how faithful he is to his promises, how merciful and forgiving he is? Brothers and sisters, please, please don't walk away and forget that you have eternal life now. Please remember, remember this when you go to lunch today, when you go home, when you go to bed and sleep and wake up, when you go to work, know that you have eternal life. Know that you're in God's presence and you're able to commune with our living God. And when you face uncertainty and storms of life come at you, remember that you and I already have the most precious blessing that we can ever have, and that's Jesus himself. When you fall in sin and you want to hide like Adam and Eve did, remember, remember that the purpose of your life is to be in God's presence. And he is welcoming us into his arms right now, not because of what we did or didn't do, but because of Christ. So go, go to Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up.